Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, without any further ado, let's get on with it. Uh, Rudolf Richard, there is one of the original members of the group at Martinum, is going to discuss the discount house, Mr. Discount, and so on. So, Rudy, you are. Thank on. you, Professor. Um, before I jump into that, just a couple of words about myself. Uh, I spent 40 plus years in the machine tool industry, mechanical engineer background, and um, that's where my, my start was. And then machine tool industry in North America disappeared or tapered off more and more. And my company, my father's company, our family company, started to lose money. And we ended up shutting it down. And I said, wow, what do I do now? start a new career or what? And I said, besides that, I've still got some money. I better understand what to do with it. So I started to study economics and investments and this and that and the other. And well, it wasn't working very well. And, and especially in the economics field, I, you know, there's stuff out in conventional economics like, uh, you know, efficient market hypothesis. Uh, the market's not efficient. It's psychologically driven. And anyway, long story short, none of it made much sense. Then I saw a thing called Austrian economics. Oh, well, that's something different. And I have a bit of a nature to kind of go to the other side, a contrarian view. If the boat's tipping this way and everybody's lined up, I run to the other side. So, oh, Austrians are contrarian. And it started to make sense because human action drives economics. And I studied, I, I bought uh, the big book by uh, Mises and went through that. And I studied Rothbard and I became a bit of a guru or, or uh, not the guru, but the disciple, I should say. And then I saw in the internet this, and forgive me for this, but he's my countryman, so I can say, this crazy Hungarian, Fekete, ah, oh, Fekete, that's a Hungarian guy, criticizing Mises, you know, criticizing the guru. He says, oh, you gotta be kidding. So I, I have to read this. And I start to read his, his, his stuff, start to make some sense. So oh, maybe I should read some more. And then one day I saw a criticism that on page 434 of Human Action, Mises says, quote, a fully mature claim against gold is as good as gold for all practical purposes, end quote. So you gotta be kidding. I knew it was not true. My family escaped from Hungary, uh, and when we went through the border, it wasn't paper, it was gold watch that got us through the border, and. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Vietnamese people, the boat people who had gold coins survived, those who didn't, didn't, so on. So I said, okay. I pulled the book off my shelf, because I had the book. There it was. Mises did say that. So, in a flash, it was not the crazy Hungarian, it was Professor Fekete. So, <laughs> so I downloaded all his work, and I made my own binder, and went through all this, and studied it all, and it was just wonderful stuff. And then, there was no more. I said, oh, there's got to be more, Economics 202, where, you know, where do we go? And he announced uh, Gold Standard University live, live. He would actually be speaking there. So I was in like Flynn, and it's gone ever since then. So <clears throat> that's a, just a couple of words on myself. Now, before getting into the meat of this talk, a, a little commercial break, if you don't mind. 
Uh, first of all, my book, uh, it's called Beyond Mises, based on the work of Antal Fekete, and, and he has endorsed it. This was written about a year and a half ago before we had the new Austrian School of Economics. So it's not called New Austrian School of Economics, it's called Beyond Mises, but really that's what it's about. And my own background, like I said, was an engineer. And an engineer takes uh, scientific law discovered by scientists and applies it to real-world stuff. And this is sort of the idea behind this book, to take the scientific principles discovered, so on, and, and make it accessible to the next level. And um, this book normally lists for $39 US plus shipping, and overseas shipping is pretty expensive. But today, because you guys are all uh, here, it's only 20 euros, so it's about half the price. And if you want one, you can have one, I'll sign it, and so on. And um, the other thing is, Professor Fekete was talking about the, the four course masters or whatever, um, or, or the Frank Lloyd Wright Award or the Anton E. Fekete Award. And if you miss the first session in Budapest, don't fret, it's all here. It's 18 DVD set. And Judith is kind enough to provide the notes, which I don't have with me, but we'll, we'll provide the, the, the text. And it's going to cost a lot less than it would have cost to go to Budapest. The original price of the course was 1,000 euros, plus travel expense, plus whatever. And these are listed at 500, so it's already a good deal. But for anybody who's here, it's only 300. Or if you're a member in good standing of the um, uh, um, Gold Standard Institute. Sorry. Philip and my buddy over there founded this institute with the intent of carrying on this type of work. And I, after I made a commitment, personal commitment, to help preserve and disseminate the professor's knowledge, which I thought was much too valuable to waste, and Philip came along and said, yeah, I want to do that too, in a way, gold standard, so and so. And I, after a while, I said, OK, Philip, we'll commit to, I'm going to commit to this as well as a continuation. So, uh, oh yeah, now the other thing is also, we had a session in, New, Ze in uh, New Zealand, and I videoed this, and except for a little camera glitch that my own personal presentation isn't on there, everything else is. But since my presentation isn't on there, it's half price, so you don't have to pay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's, it's a smaller set, and it's called New Austrian School of Economics, Volume 2, Sound Money or Unsound? And Sandeep Jaitley is on there, and a little bit of myself. And it's quite nice. Uh, and this is going to be um, 250 euro, and for you guys, 150. And only today's special inside job. Uh, this was a documentary, a professionally done documentary about the trillion dollar heist. You know, the US uh, Treasury of Secretary and Bernanke and all this stuff, the, the boys with a big Z or Z. And it was, it received an award for best documentary, whatever, and it was scheduled to be released in 3,000 some odd US theaters. And I said, oh, I'm going to go see that. And it ended up being released in three theaters on the fringe. So what happened to the 3,000 theaters? And it's, is the door closed? It's a pirated copy. <laughs> so I can't sell it, or I won't, I won't sell it, but I'm gonna give it to anybody who wants to buy one of these things. And I've read lately that it is being issued as a DVD, so it may be available, may not. Anyway, you can, it's worth a look. So, 
Um, commercial is over. Yeah, commercial is over. Okay. So I talked a little bit about me and so on. Now, before I really get into the meat of it, I'll just say a few words. The Buddha said, don't believe anything because authority says so. Don't believe anything because authority. You know, who's the authority? Is it Bernanke? Is it Trichet? Is it this? Then he says, don't believe anything because tradition says so. Well, okay, which tradition? The Austrian tradition, the Keynesian tradition, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, incredibly enough, and I paraphrase this, don't believe anything because the Buddha says so. So I'm going to say, don't believe anything I tell you because I say so. Go out and find out for yourself. You have to think. Um, after you don't believe anybody out there, what do you believe? Well, you believe that which makes sense. You have two plus two is four. Yeah, I got that. I believe it, and so on. And then we put quite a bit of energy into Mr. Blumen. So don't believe what the cranks tell you either. And don't take it too seriously. Now, when the professor started, and some of you guys missed the beginning, the first thing he said was, let's introduce uh, gold and silver, open the mint, to run in parallel to the paper system as a transition. And then we kind of went to the pessimistic side, what we don't want. So, you know, this is like the Titanic, and the Titanic has already hit the iceberg, and we're shuffling chairs, and it's sinking, and oh my god. Well, the Titanic, not everybody on the Titanic died, and planet Earth is not the Titanic, it's not going to sink. So let's just, now that we know what we don't want, Let's look at what we do want. You know, if you're on the road to hell and you keep walking, you know exactly where you're going to end up. You don't want to go there. So what do you do? You go here, you go there, this, that, and the other. That's what we want to look at, concentrate on. And, uh, oh, and uh, Keith made an interesting presentation, and he said he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you can't buy gold for paper, you won't be able to buy food for paper. And this is a given. So have some gold. And of course, you can also end up bartering stuff. If you've got a bottle of whiskey and somebody's thirsty, they may just give you food for it. And this is where the survivalists come in. Not too interested in that. Just say yes, Keith. And he also said another thing. He said the inflationary uh, effect, side effect is capital decumulation. In other words, the attention goes from machinery and the cattle and the, and the farm and whatever it is to the cash, to keeping track of the, the money. And I, I studied this thing a little bit, uh, some books from South America where this went on for years and years and years. And sure enough, people were more concerned with instantly depositing, running to deposit their cash at the highest possible interest to preserve some value and so on and so forth. But the thing is, it takes years of this, that these inflations in the southern uh, hemisphere took years. And if we come to hyperinflation that runs in months, this is not going to go that way. I mean, think about it. If there's a tractor and a farm, and it's kind of wearing out and no service because you don't have the attention, you don't have the money, it's going to decline and, and, and finally disappear. But if there's a nice new tractor, and the mortgage is called, tractor is grabbed. Ownership is transferred. So the wealth is going to be transferred, I would think, more than destroyed, although clearly some of it is destroyed. Uh, American, the North American industry, which I'm very connected to my business, was one of these things. Hey, well, guess what? We're still in the business, but the machines are built in China. So all this capital has not actually really disappeared, maybe shrunk, so on, but a lot of it has been transferred. So 
personal recommendation is for you guys is to preserve what you can and position yourself to gain from what's coming from the transfer. So, I don't know, buy China shares, or I don't know. But again, that's not what we want to talk about. And when the paper thing disappears or blows away, the real wealth will stay. The road, maybe in bad repair, but there's still a road. And maybe it's an old truck, but there's still a truck, and, and so on. And the idea is to uh, put this real wealth to some better use. And I hope and I believe that the institutions built on paper will also disappear. Uh, you know, when, was it Mugabe or whatever we guys were talking about, uh, Zimbabwe? Yeah. When he could no longer pay his mercenaries, his power disappeared. And, you know, when the Americans left Vietnam, they left their equipment behind, and people were hanging onto the helicopter skid. I read an article by Assistant Secretary of State of the U.S., which is one level below cabinet level. Cabinet level is with the president. He wrote this article, he says, the next time the Americans have a Vietnam, will they have the resources to rescue their people? And, and I, I swear my hairs were standing on ends. Oh my God, could it come to that, that they cannot even, because of this collapse, the, the, the soldiers here and there never will be abandoned. So I didn't say this, he said it. All right. So <clears throat> negativism, pessimism, what we don't want, what we do want, let's try to head towards proper thinking. And, and I think Keith has some ideas on rational thinking and whatnot. And it has to go in both directions, towards the very specific nitty-gritty and back to the broad and you know, back and forth. And if you're flexible, you'll be able to see what it all means. You can dig into more details in order to explain the big ideology or the big ideas. And of course, if the big ideas, if, if the ideas become ideologies, then the mind is shut to seeing what's really happening. When people see, they don't see, they're blindsided, it's because their ideology said, no, that's impossible, we don't see that, I can't see that. So before going into the, into the official topic, I'd like to just go back to that skit we did. I mean, I think you guys saw it. Uh, here I was, my role as a um, cotton merchant, and then there was the uh, spinner making yarn, the weaver, and uh, the retailer, the, the clothier, who sells the clothes. And we sort of jumped in and said, here's the bail, and back and forth, and sign, and all this, and it was fun. And actually, I was tossing, turning all night. I said, no, 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 we missed the essential of this. Give me a chance to think about this. So let's go to a cash-only society. Before even debt, okay, just strictly cash, and try to run this scenario. Well, in order for me to buy a bale of cotton from the farmer, I have to reach into my pocket and come up with the whole enchilada, let's say 10 units of wealth, ounces, grains, whatever you want to call it, coins, and pay the whole thing. And then I put it in my warehouse, and there it sits, and this uh, spinner comes along, and he wants to buy my uh, bale of uh, cotton, and I'm going to mark it up. It's going to be 11 units. He's going to have 11 units in his pocket to buy it from me. And the next guy is going to buy it from him, 12 units. And then the retailer, 13 units. So add all this up. You've got 10, 11, 10 plus 11 plus 12 plus 13 plus whatever. 
I don't know, how much is that? 60 uh, units of gold has to be sitting there. And where did that come from? Well, let's just see. And then uh, the uh, retailer says, gee, I could sell three times as much, 300% more. Well, wonderful idea, but how do we do it? Well, I can't buy three bales of cotton. I don't have the cash. He can't buy 3,000 yards of yard. He doesn't have the cash, and so on. And the retailer can't. So it's just a pipe dream. What can happen is we make a small profit, uh, re, you know, save that little bit of profit, and next year do you know, one and one-tenth bales, so we increase our business 10%, and the year after that, perhaps another 10%. So it'll take how many years to, to grow? You can do the math. That's in a cash-only society. Now let's suppose there is credit available, that borrowing and, and lending is available already, debt, real borrowing, collateral, and so on. Well, that means I didn't have to save that money to buy the bale of cotton, but somebody did. Somebody's going to lend it to me. Right? It has to be available. Professor said there's not enough gold. I think what he means is that there's not enough gold accessible to invest in this particular enterprise, not, just, not that there isn't enough gold in the world physically. It's just not in my pocket, and it's not in his pocket. Or anybody's pocket, because we're talking about the whole society, the whole economy. So, we get into our little uh, skit with the credit. Suddenly we want a credit based on clearing. Suddenly, this guy over there, the last one, the retailer, says, well, I'm going to triple my business. I'm going to order three times as much merchandise and, and uh, have a bigger, uh, uh, bigger um, real bill. Sounds good and it passes along and so on, and when the gold comes in from the consumer, it's all paid off. So you can do this. You can triple your business overnight. With one little proviso, do we have the physical capacity to do three times as much turnover? Now this is a very important point because you hear a lot about the economy overheating and we've got to put on the brakes and we've got to cool it down, and you don't hear it lately, but... <laughs> You know, this doesn't happen under real bills because if, say, the weaver cannot produce three times as much cloth, he will not be able to deliver it, and the retailer will not be able to, there will be no bill drawn. That money or that ephemeral money cannot come into existence. The physical constraint of the economy prevents it. So what will happen? Well, the weaver is going to say, oh my God, you think you can do that? Okay, I'm going to go and borrow money, buy a new loom, double up my capacity, and then we can do it. So this is borrowing because it's long-term capital, but it's based on solid cash flow. It's uh, a debt that will not self-liquidate, but will pay itself off. There's a difference there. Just an example, if you buy a car, consumer debt, uh, $30,000, euros, whatever, you borrow the money to do it, then you have to have a job outside to pay this car. But let's say you buy the same car and you use it for a taxi, you drive it as a taxi. No difference, same car, same money, but it pays itself. So in a way this debt is going to pay it whatever was incurred. So I wanted to point this out that in a cash-only society you've got a problem. And in 100% gold standard society you've got a problem because you still have to borrow money if it's available and interest rates are significantly higher because presumably there's a lot of demand for, for, 
for debt, for credit that cannot be fulfilled. And then the final level, which we sort of cut short as well, when that real bill starts to circulate, uh, this is extending the benefit of this chain to the whole world and the arbitrage is possible and we're trending towards an optimum, lowest cost uh, production. So that's, that's the little thing I wanted to, uh, to clear up or add to it. Does that all make sense? Everybody got that? All right. Now this idea of least effort, this is critical and it's a principle of physics but it's not talked about very much. If you throw a ball, well I think we all know it's a parabola, but why? Is it because it's got a nice equation, now you mathematicians? No, that's the natural result of the, the force of gravity and the uh, inertia of the ball and the velocity and blah blah blah, that's the way it must work. And it does work unless some external force maybe a puff of wind or a bird gets in the way or something changes it. So you're, and that's the best it can ever be. And if you, if you hang up a rope, you have a catenary curve, it naturally assumes that position. If you blow a balloon or, or a soap bubble, uh, the surface tension of, the, of the, the soap ensures that it's going to be spherical unless there's wind blowing or something. And this is a natural process, this. Uh, this real bill business, this economic exchange, and without interference, it does do that. Okay, so that is uh, about that. Now, there's another point I'd like to make. You guys have been pretty quiet when we ask for questions. Not too many questions. I don't know if people are shy or whatever, but there have been some questions over a beer, or <laughs> and I'd like to address a couple of them. Uh, let's see what we're there. There was one with Sandeep, and I think uh, Ben asked me this about this uh, stuff he put up there. And so on. And then the next level, whatever it was. And Sandeep, as a mathematician, he's a real sharp guy, but all these mathematicians, sometimes you've got to bring back on board and say, hey, an engineering problem here. <laughs> so, and, and there's what he called the margin, what have you. So he said, rightly so, everything is perfectly right. If this is cash, and this is available term, then you can take this and this, and you come up with a new sum, and so on. We even did some numbers. But, there was one factor that's not included in here, it's called hoarding. This is saving, I guess. And this is hoarding. If there's cash in your pocket, it's not going into the system. The system being the banking system. And presumably there's, uh, what they call that thing, over-the-counter sales and purchases. Well, over-the-counter is when two guys sit at the counter in a bar and make a deal. And they're not in the system either. So I'm not going to talk about that. So theoretically, it's possible that they all look like this. All time deposit. Because there's some cash in people's pocket, and they say, if I'm not getting interest, I'm not putting it in the bank. Why shouldn't that be possible? Even makes sense. And then this uh, recursive, is not a lovely word, people do it over and over again, okay? It tends to infinity. You can do this forever, because there's no cash commitment. If I make mathematical full pie, you speak up, man. All right. And of course, the opposite is possible, too. 
all cash. People just want to put their money into the goldsmith's vault or the bank's vault. And then there's no credit whatsoever in this system. Right? Okay. Now there's one thing, and, and this is Philip's little quote that came along, thank you. What about the real bills? Well, this doesn't include real bills, or does it? This we said was cash. Uh, how do I do cash? Ah, not like that. <laughs> Gold. And this is some sort of debt or credit or whatever, so maybe a C. And if all there is is uh, debt or borrowing-based stuff and cash gold stuff, yeah, that's the way it is. And, and this part doesn't earn any interest. There's no incentive for people to put their money in, blah, 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 blah. But that's not the way it is or was. Because when real bills are in circulation, this real bill component is in the cash component. Uh, the Reich Bank before World War I said one-third gold, two-third bills as the reserve of the bank, or rather not reserve, sorry, against which notes can be written, yes. issued. So there is your 100% backing, or 100%, but the backing is not only cash, physical gold, cash, and bills. Hmm. Well, that makes it a lot bigger, doesn't it? Because people uh, are saying that's a huge, huge market. But it also means this does earn some return. The, the discount rate is being earned, and it's extremely safe. And in fact, if the bank doesn't buy actively new bills, all the bills will mature into gold. So they'll end up with pure gold or silver. Is that clear? Yeah. So every, every day a bill matures, the ratio shifts, so they go out and buy another bill. And of course, new bills are created. And this component never goes to zero because bills are always being, people have to eat. It can shrink and expand. So that's what I wanted to add to this, to this wonderful presentation. And um, there was one more. I wonder what it was. Well, I think I covered both Philip and Sandeep's uh, question. Anybody have any questions so far? I'm asking you, please, please put in your question. Yes, uh, ah. yes the, the production of raw materials yes. should not be financed with uh, bills. Okay, that's a good question. Start, start with maybe a vertical line. Well, let's, let's just, we had our, we had our four, it was four protagonists or four actors here. The next guy in line is a farmer. Will he or will he not be included in this chain remains to be seen. And it depends on the length of time it takes. And, and we talked about the slogan in your presentation. You know what? I don't know. I don't want to know. I just want to let the market decide. Yes. I was going to add two points to the inefficiency of the gold, pure gold coin thing. Um, one of which we talked a little bit about yesterday is that as the economy becomes more uh, advanced, uh, you keep adding more and more different players in yes. the middle. So four becomes 40 yes. 400, which would require constantly increasing the amount of gold in the system, Absolutely. which is totally elastic. The other is that um, if you shape along the way, the gross margins of each of those players is very small. It might be on the order of a couple of percent. That's why nobody has a gold coin to buy the complete Mm -hmm. Lot of the 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 yarn spinners buying the complete yeah. farm field full of cotton bales and producing yarn out of it. That might be um, I don't know five thousand ounces of gold worth of cotton, 
and then it sells it for 5,200 ounces of gold. It only has a 200 ounce margin yes. on the whole thing, which means after you've done the tra transaction, he's capable of buying 125th yes. of, of the next thing. And so um, in order to strip the gold coin-based system with no credit, the gross margins of all the players in the chain would have to be probably order of magnitude bigger, 10 times bigger than they are, which as we know uh, from in uh, Budapest, the uh, decreasing spreads, decreasing margins in this case, is a sign of increasing efficiency. Mm -hmm. But if, if we have to go backwards and say, no, these people are going to operate on a 50% gross margin basis, finally 1,000 selling for 2,000, then we're going to take a step back in efficiency, which means taking a step back in coordination, preventing economic development. This is an intractable problem. And the more, the larger the economy gets, and the more that it wants to grow advanced, the more this problem is an impediment. Yes. Thank you. For, first of all, the first part, I kind of skipped over that. Just as if the three or four of us want to expand our capacity, so let's suppose that there's more sophisticated uh, process and somebody called a, 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 a dye specialist gets in line and takes the raw thread or yarn and paints it different colors, runs it through equipment and, well, then he's, gonna be, he's in the loop and he's got to have the cash, gold, and the equipment and so on. So you're absolutely right. It's not just growth of capacity that needs to be funded. I don't want to say finance because that may be misinterpreted. Funded somehow. But also the growth in complexity, sophistication, and so on and so forth. And, and let's be clear, we're trying to do what Einstein said. He said, in order for a model of reality to be useful, it needs to be as simple as possible, but no simpler. So don't put extreme, don't leave extraneous stuff in there, but don't take out anything important. Keynes took out something important. It's called savings. Yes, yeah, I just want to mention that uh, in my example, the model with all the squares in that, with all the squares and all that. Okay. <clears throat> I um, I'm talking purely about interest in that. Regard. Sure, that's so nothing to do with discount. So when I say demand, for me, it's on demand. You know, it's not even in real world. Mm -hmm. If you want a 91-day deposit, sure, you put it into real bills. Okay. But the, the, the bill market was more related to the turning of that part, okay. if it's related. Yes. It has to be kept distinct from it that. It does, and, and thank you for pointing out this part, uh, because there's another little refinement. Now we're going in the direction of more refinement rather than that. There's funds. So what, what about it? Well, there's two questions to ask. Where did it come from? And what are we going to do with it? Okay, so the uh, money in your pocket that you have to scrape out of your margin and maybe a higher margin to make it possible, that's savings. That comes from the past, past activity. My last transaction with these guys, I made one, you know, 10%, so I'm going to add it to my savings, and then I can do that. But the real bills reach into the future. This stuff hasn't happened yet. The transaction has not taken place. The gold is not yet gathered. It's not in my pocket. It's just the anticipation that it will be. The wrong word. The conviction that it will be means that it's really, really safe to do this and pull in this future stuff, this future funding to today. And it makes possible that which is not possible using only the past gathered, saved goods. And think about it this way too, you know, we talk about 
you know, the, the floor and ceiling, and it's pretty scientific stuff. I got gold in my pocket. Am I really eager to send it out there? I got this pathological urge to palm it. <laughs> you want it? You're going to have to pay me, and pay me pretty good. But the other one, well, this stuff is going to come in, we know, and we can do it on a minimum, and the psychological stuff is not that important anymore. It's all these commercial guys who know each other, and so on. So now, psychology does come in because I'm not going to grant credit to Joe Blow over there, and that's where the acceptance house will come in. But let's not go too far with that yet. Not quite there yet. So yeah, you, you, you reach into the past. It's like digging oil. You know, this is historically buried, and oh my god, we're going to run out. Well, what about the future? Well, let's reach into the future and use human resources, human intellect, and this to figure out what will be, or at least go there. Uh, let me put it this way. There are no such thing as resources. There is no resource. Well, there's one resource. Um, oil was a smelly nuisance, polluting the pond where the cows hang out until somebody discovered a use for it. Oh, we can turn this into kerosene. Maybe it's got some value. And then the next inventor came along and said, hey, not only that, but we can turn it into gasoline, use it to fuel engines. And suddenly, this smelly nuisance became a resource. And, you know, oak trees in, in um, ancient history, they were just trees. But in England, a few hundred years ago, they were a resource that was running short. They couldn't build ships for the, Her Majesty's fleet, and uh, couldn't make enough charcoal to make iron, because the trees were all chopped down. Oh my god, what do we do? Well, there was this black rock around called jet, which people use for jewelry. Then they called it coal. And that fueled the whole industrial revolution. So resources are, that's the only real resource. And one of the unfortunate things today is that a lot of the ecological movements, oh, peak oil, peak this, but yeah, good. So what's better than oil? You know, let's just not get stuck on that. Okay, where are we now? Okay, so uh, I think we're ready to go to the real course that I'm supposed to talk about, the discount house and... What is the discount house? Well, it's, it's a retail outlet for real bills. It's a store. And if you walk into a store, let's say you're selling cabbages. <laughs> you know, oh, we got some real nice ones in the vault over there. You want to buy one? He says, no, I want to see it. Touch it. Smell it. Ah, okay, I'm taking that one. You know, people go around and say, oh, this one is good. And they pretend not to touch the bread or the cabbage or whatever. So, you go into the retail outfit, that handles these things. They're a brokerage, if you will, to just buy and sell, or, or buy and hold and sell, or discount and rediscount, all above board. Now, do they keep books? Well, yeah, they keep books, but the books are not on display, but the merchandise, which happens to be real bills, are on display. Okay? And notice the other thing, they don't really have any input to this except buying it and selling it, so they kind of have a little bit of input on the price, but that's about it and they can choose to hold it or, or pass it on. But if you want this real bill circulation to be really, really big, it needs a little more than that. Some unknown parties in Brazil and, and uh, you know, France, and what, your book talks about that, Philip, the guy who sends coffee beans from Brazil to some, you know, and, and it all looks good, but you sort of say, gee, was, is uh, Monsieur Jean going to pay me my bill? Is he really a coffee? You know, there's doubt. But barons of London 
oh, Barron's, they're a multi, multi, multi-millionaire company, till they went bankrupt. They guarantee this, oh, that's the word I was looking for before, that the, the, the um, acceptor guarantees that this transaction will take place. So maybe I should say in a way it's kind of like a market maker in bills rather than just a broker. He has some, and of course out of this arises conflict of interest, just as a market maker in, in uh, you know, stuff has some sort of interest to, to start applying pressure. And of course that's what happened in various ways. Don't want to go too far with that either. It needs better regulation. Now, did government pop into your minds when I said regulation? I would suspect it did. That does not have to be that way. It can be regulated by third parties with the proper incentive structure. Now, Moody's and uh, S&P and these guys have the wrong incentive structure. The issuers pay them. It's in their interest to, to give the AAA rating and plus government pressure. But there are other outfits that are consumer-oriented, and they give advice. There's magazines talking about cars, and there's an underwriter's laboratory. So if the recipient of the information pays for it, the incentive is for that information to be honest. But anyway, let's leave that be, because how this is resolved, leave it to the market. But let's not get, because the government regulators have just as much conflict of interest as uh, the, 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 the um, uh, the, the, <laughs> the acceptance house has, because the government wants the acceptance house to accept their paper, their anticipation bills, their government paper, and so on. So if the inspector is in bed with the, the inspectee, it's like, what do you call that, the, the uh, fox watching the uh, chicken house or something? No. Okay, so, so that's for the, for the discount house. Now, one thing we, we did talk about, and I don't know how up to snuff on economics you guys are, and I didn't, I'm not getting enough feedback, so I'm just going to assume you don't know. I'm going to tell you. We talked about marginal uh, utility, and, and I think Sandy touched on this, and he said, well, the least uh, useful uh, or the least valuable use of the product defines its utility, and so on and so forth. This springs from human value scales, and the core belief of the Austrians is that human scales of value cannot be measured, only compared. So I like to use the example of someone in the Sahara Desert, thirsty, what's the most important thing in his life, his value scale? Is it diamonds? No. Is it water? Yes. That's his number one thing. So if some sharp Arab camelback tra uh, trader comes along and says, I got some water, you want to buy it? Oh, yeah, yeah, what do you want to buy? See, he drinks the water, and one another one? Well, I'm still pretty thirsty. I was just dying of thirst. I'm still pretty thirsty. That, that there's been a decline in the utility of the water. But it's still first on his scale. He drinks another one. You want another water? No, no, I can't. I, <laughs> sell me a canteen so I can carry water in it. So we just crossed the margin. The highest... Uh, demand product or whatever for this guy now is canteens. And then he buys canteens and he's got six canteens, 12 canteens. One other canteen? No, no, no. Sell me a camel to carry them. You see, these things swap. So the declining marginal utility of each commodity means that something else takes the uh, highest spot. But what did he use to buy this stuff with? He bought the water with money. He bought the canteens with Money. He bought the camel, if he buys a camel, with money and so on. 
So money is always the most, but always related to the most important uh, thing in his value scale, and that's why the marginal utility of money declines very slowly or not at all. And if gold is money, which we all accept here, I think, then uh, a flat curve would mean no decline whatsoever. It would mean there's no spread because no matter how much of it there is, they're all the same value, not like water which goes down fast. So, but the marginal, now the, the other thing is that uh, this concept of a margin, I'm not sure if everybody understands it. I certainly had some difficulty. Uh, Professor Fekker was talking about the marginal productivity of labor. I said, well, that's productivity, labor, that's okay. So, what I, I thought this out a little bit, and it's kind of like, let's say we want to do, just figure out what marginal and all this means. So let's say we do a survey, and we, we in, in this little town, Sombatay, uh, the people, so there are a bunch of people in this town, short, taller, tallest, and so all of them are, are listed. And we've got a line here, which I'm going to make a different color. This is our margin. And on this side, we have short people. And this side, we have tall people. OK? It's pretty simple. A list with, a, with some variable and a dividing line the margin. So you come back, and let's say we start at, I don't know, you guys are metric, but let's say five feet, and here is six feet. That's our range, whatever it is. So you see five and one half feet. That's the line, short, tall, done. So you come back next year and you do the survey again. This set and this set and of course, maybe in the total number, probably change. Automatically, you know, more babies are born, there are more small people, or people matured, or who knows. Fine, so what? But there's another thing we can do here. Who says five foot and a half is the right margin? We don't know that. So I'm going to say it's five foot two inches. I can move this one anywhere I want. Is that, that okay, that clear? So let's say instead of short and tall people, we, we say, Companies, small and big companies, you know, they make $100,000, million dollars, 10 million, 100,000, a billion, whatever. So now we've got small and big, and again, we've got a line that's kind of arbitrary. Okay. Well, let's say another kind of survey similar to this. What about profitable companies? Eh. Well, we don't look at the top line anymore. Now we look at the bottom line and say, what is their net income? Well, this is zero. This line is no longer arbitrary, right? And these are companies that lose, and it would probably look different. This would be red, getting more and more losses, and this would be blue, no more profits. Is that okay? Everybody follow this? Okay. So then, I, I understand what the margin is, and what we're measuring, and how this, this division line between one side and the other side can be either arbitrary or determined by other circumstances, by something intrinsic in what we're looking for. So, marginal utility of labor. Is that profitability of a family? 
Well, I don't think so. I mean, somebody can make thousands and thousands or hundreds of thousands of euros and spend it all and still be negative. And someone could be frugal and save. So it's not really that. So what does it really mean, marginal productivity of labor? So I did it a little differently from my own understanding. And I did a little chart like this. And this is a measure of value added. In other words, how much is that person accomplishing by doing whatever he's doing? So how do we measure that? Well, let's suppose um, the economy is reasonably steady and balanced, and you kind of go by dollars per hour or euros. So you've got someone making 5 and 10 and 15 and 25 and who knows, 50, whatever. So this is your... Your, your, a measure of your productivity, it's money per unit time, or value per unit time, value added. And of course, this is zero. And then I draw another little line here, goes to zero, and then it goes up. And then along here, I take my, my, my measurements, and I say, well, uh, a busboy at a restaurant gets, uh, you know, uh, somewhere in here, three, this is your bus boy. And the man, a street sweeper gets, uh, gets in here. Street sweeper. <laughs> and, you know, someone, with, you know, shoveling dirt. And then maybe up here somewhere, 15, 20, whatever numbers are, he's doing, driving a truck or, or a, a steam, I call it a power shovel. I don't want to write all this stuff up. And you go along and, you know, you come up to here and there's your brain surgeon. And maybe the CEO of uh, Toyota is way up there, adding value. Now, this zero, this point right here is, I take a nap on the couch, doing nothing. And negative, you don't usually talk about negative, but yeah, if you've got a um, graffiti or a criminal, or you've got an arsonist, or you've got soldiers blowing up stuff, or the CEO of Goldman Sachs, or a politician. <laughs> okay. So is that the whole thing? Well, not quite. There's one more thing here I think that is really important. We just were, we, we got to draw a line across this somewhere. Let me give you an example. Let's say the government, the honest business, says $15 an hour or 15 euros or 50 minutes is the minimum wage. All this is gone. You can no longer get anybody to work for this, but it's illegal. That's awful. But it's true. And of course, in their so-called wisdom, they, you know, we want to protect the workers from exploitation. And if you lower the minimum wage, you got a bunch more people working because the, now there's the street sweeper who only produces small value is still, I don't want to say profitable, but is above, this is kind of the marginal utility. But other factors can influence this line. Now, never mind the government. I mean, forget this. There are some natural... Uh, things that set. Let's say here's your power shovel guy or, or power uh, digger, and he's well above this, but this is the, the cost of doing business. And this, and this is your break even point from business point of view. Let's suppose interest rates are huge, and you want to buy a power shovel, they cost so much, it's cheaper to hire these guys down here. Well, this one is below the marginal utility. Okay, so where do we go with this? Well, clearly the lower this is, the break-even cost of society as a whole, the better. 
more you have less unemployment, and those guys here who would starve to death without the dole can now earn something. And they, if they, even if they start, let's say, a teenager at you know working at a menial job, they start to learn at least a work ethic. Yeah, I did something. I got paid for it. Oh, I can do better. Morally correct thing to do. Long story short, if you get this line just down here, almost at zero value, virtually the whole world can work. Doesn't mean they will, but at least you make it possible. And how do you get there? By doing your minimum effort, your most efficient economy. And you do not have an efficient economy without real bills, because they're the most efficient means of, of financing. So you get rid of the regulations, the cost, the taxes, all this brings it down to a low level, and then to go even lower to the fully natural state. Any questions? Any comments? How are we doing for time? Uh, you have, you have uh, 10 minutes more. Okay. So this is, this is my idea of, you know, your, your, I guess you could also call it net versus gross. If there's a huge expense, you need a tremendous gross to, to make the thing profitable. So you reduce the cost of, of life, of doing business. And historically, uh, the trend has been down. You know very well that hundreds of years ago, interest was not very well recognized and you had to kind of dance around it with a triple contract. So any kind of financing was expensive. And then it came down. And other overhead costs, transportation costs came down. And um, communication costs came down. And yet, and yet the cost of goods has, go, has been going up lately anyway, for the last hundred years, because, well, because of the other the things pushing this up artificially and unnecessarily. So I, my suggestion is that if we want to really improve the world, we have to get this break-even cost down. And you know very well if you go through bureaucracy and hoops and everything else, it, it's very painful. So, if all this regulatory crap is blown away and, and, and gone, we're going to be pretty good. This, suddenly this economy can go... You know, I think the Russian example is pretty good. They, it was a horrible economy, uh, you know, socialist, no calculation, the cost of doing business, the work ethic. And yet when all this went away and the taxation was reduced, they started to do quite well, even though the people were not uh, socially trained or, or understanding what's going on. They didn't have the work ethic, if you will. I don't, that's not just a good word, but they didn't enjoy work. They didn't know what it meant. The, the communist regime, they used to say, we'll pretend to work, you pretend to pay us. You must have heard that before. No, that's what it was. I, I, I know, I lived under that system. I'm sure Professor Fekete knows. You pretend to work, they pretend to pay you. That's, that's the communist or socialist system. So, I don't know, I don't really have too, too much to say. Uh, Let me ask the question. Yeah, is the, is uh, an increase in the marginal productivity of labor a good thing or a bad well, thing? Well, okay, let's thank you. I, 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 maybe this will... See, if you have this, uh, whatever. If you have this line fixed here, and there are... Uh, what is this, the busboy and uh, shovel scooper and so on. Well, maybe they'll do some, maybe they'll work themselves up here. So the set, this set, and then this set, 
you know, before I said a set of short people, tall people, well, these are set who are not profitable or not uh, reaching that break-even point, and these do reach it. People can migrate up there, you know. But also, this line can come down because of in improvements in the cost of doing business, take broad terms. So it can go both ways. Uh, and I think you, you talked about this, that there's a natural way and an artificial way, or, and there was some confusion on what is, why is and it going progressive and regressive, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, now, here's the thing. If the government or the central bank allows the interest rate to go up, what will that do? Okay, well, a good point again. Thank you. Uh, somebody may say, why bother with um, real bills? We'll just push the interest rate down. But that obviously has very, very bad ramifications for the savers. You know, nobody wants to save anymore. So there's no accumulation of capital. So what happens next? Well, the central bank has to print capital, pretend capital, to replace that which would have been saved. So this destroys the economy. And of course, the falling interest rates. OK, let's just let's do it this way. Uh, maybe I should get a new, a little more refined view. You know, you, you've got this thing here. If you're, you're let's say you're, this is your, this is your discount rate. And now what I'm doing is I'm going to break out these different costs, not one aggregate cost. This kind rate, and this other one is interest rate, which is higher. And this is the discount. And then this line represents other expenses. Who knows what? Regulations, uh, transport costs. Well, be careful with that too. But let's just say, and then. I don't need more colors. Your, your real zero line is down here. Okay? If you finance from interest rates, you're up here, but if you finance from bills, you're here. And, if, and the more you can finance with bills, this is the discount rate, right? And this is interest. Okay? So if you can, if you, and of course the incentive is there to cheat and pretend you can take advantage of this, but actually you should be doing it from there. So there, there needs to be a non-Chinese wall here. There has to be some recognition that it's wrong to, uh, to bridge that gap. And the more, now just, for example, think about the numbers here. You know, we're talking about um, clothes and bread. Bread. How much is a loaf of bread, guys? A dollar? Two dollars, dollar, dollar. Okay. How many people are in the world? Five billion, seven billion? They all kind of buy a loaf of bread every few days or equivalent. So you're talking billion or two dollars a day financed by this or financed by that. That's not fast. That's just bread. What about lettuce and cabbages and shoes and, you know, uh, don't ask me what the number is, but it's enormous. And the, the other thing is about it, you buy a house more or less once in 30 years, but you buy bread every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, a dollar a day for 30 years, uh, is that as much as a house? I don't know, but think about it. And, and there's more to this. I mean, this goes everywhere, obviously. 
Some people, a lot of people in the world spend 40, 50, 60, even 70% of their income on food alone. Not in North America, in Europe. So if food prices go up because of some hanky-panky here, they're going hungry. Why do you think our uh, revolutions and civil wars are brewing out there today? Because people are going hungry. That's the bottom line. It's if a, a person goes hungry within 72 hours, he's ready to kill for his food. So what else? Um, so feedback. <laughs> and let's look at the positive side. And, and I, I, I agree 100% with what the professor is saying that if all this paper stuff blows away, the, the, the real bills will, in one shape or another, arise again spontaneously. Why shouldn't they? They did it once, they did it you know, in history. Just like the gold standard came back, or gold became money, and then the Chinese, how many times did, Philip, how many times did the Chinese go to paper? Five times. Five times. They went. They went totally bankrupt, and of course the uh, uh, dynasty was destroyed by this. And eventually, the Chinese figured out this can't go on. Let's outlaw paper uh, money. And it was not till uh, the communist disruption, World War II, I think, that they they went back to paper. Uh, the English lost it in. Okay. In the the rebellion, but yeah. yeah, that's where it started. Okay. But anyway, the point being that. It has, to, it has to change. And people have to start understanding this and living it and not letting it go. And, you know, I've got to throw in a little bit of blurb for the uh, Gold Standard Institute. Our intent is to preserve all this information, the professor's work, and help, hopefully, to disseminate it to get it out to other people. Okay? Thank you very much. Hi, my pleasure. Uh, shall we have a question period after sure, the or a discussion or whatever if you guys want okay. or if you want to have What a about the skit? Do you want to skip guys? <laughs> I don't know. No. We'll have our discussion I think after. Uh, oh that's after, that, but, but yeah. there will be a question period in sure. 30 minutes. That's right. Let's, oh. let's go out and, and have a drink of water or whatever and then think about we may have some questions or add in or yeah, Thank you very much, Lindy.